Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Don McLeese about his book, Dwight Yoakam, A Thousand Miles from Nowhere, published in 2012 by the University of Texas Press. Though both artistically and commercially successful in his heyday of the late 1980s and 1990s, the story of Dwight Yoakam is one of an industry and community outsider. Though born in Kentucky and raised in Columbus, Ohio, Yoakam cut his professional teeth in the punk and Americana root scene in Los Angeles, playing gigs and hanging out with the Blasters, Los Lobos, and X. But Yoakam wasn't like these artists. He was less a roots rocker and more a honky-tonker, preferring to play the Palomino over the Roxy. Commercial success came upon him not by making watered-down, radio-friendly country music, but through straightforward gut-bucket honky-tonk mixed with a bit of rock and roll to give it some kick. Importantly, Yoakam had a vision. He knew what he wanted, both artistically and commercially, from the get-go. He enlisted guitarist producer Pete Anderson, also a bit of a visionary, early on. Together, they not only produced some very fine records, but also put together a fierce live act that toured the world, performing Yoakum's particular brand of fiery rock and country. McLeese details Yoakum's music through the ages and his earliest demos to what, at the time, was his most recent release, Dwight Sings Buck. Along the way, he shows Yoakum to be a man of purpose, whether it be in making honky-tonk music, helping revive the career of Buck Owens, or acting. He also makes a strong argument for considering Yoakum to be among the best writers, performers, and recording artists of all time. Don McLeese lives in Des Moines, Iowa, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Don, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Well, thanks for having me. Hey, well, thanks for agreeing to do it. Um, why don't we just start with uh, a little of your biography. Where Where do you come from, Don, and how did you get to where you are? Uh, I come from the Chicago area, uh, the western suburbs of Chicago. Uh, professionally, I was the pop music critic for the Chicago Sun-Times for 10 years. I subsequently moved to Austin, Texas, where I started out as pop music critic and then ended up as a general columnist and critic at large. I was a senior editor at No Depression, uh, and I wrote a country column for Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I somehow slid from uh, journalism into academe. Uh, and I am currently a uh, professor, a journalism professor at the University of Iowa, but I'm based in Des Moines. Uh huh. And uh, have you been able to to mix the two, the your your journalism and your uh, teaching? I would be. I would love to be able to do more of it. Uh, more of it being more journalism. Uh, the journalistic landscape has changed considerably uh, since I started teaching, and and it almost makes me look, you know, somewhat visionary. But I, I didn't jump into into teaching because I foresaw the collapse of a freelance market. It's like I. I jumped into teaching, and then there became fewer and fewer outlets for which to freelance. Uh, I, I always tell my students uh, there has never been a better time to get published. If by published you mean getting your stuff, for the, you know, on the lab or wherever, and there's never been a tougher time to get paid for it. Mm. Easier to get published because you can publish yourself. Well, you can publish yourself, and there's all sorts of places that are willing to, uh, you know, trade you publication for exposure. Uh, uh-huh. I, I'm, at a, I'm at a point in my career, in my life, where I really don't need any more exposure. Uh, uh-huh. and, and my bank won't take exposure, you know, <laughs> in, in lieu of the mortgage payment. So, <laughs> so um, why, why write this book? Why write a book about Dwight Yoakam? Uh, a number of reasons. Uh, the, uh, do you want me to start with the uh, idealistic reasons or the cynical reasons? I want you to start wherever you'd like, Don. Okay. Well, professionally, it's you know those of us 
there's a cliche in academe, publish or perish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my job requires me to publish things on a regular basis. Um, and my, you know, No Depression, I don't know how much you know about No Depression magazine, but, it, you know, it, I, I think it was a really terrific publication on alternative country or Americana or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it fell victim to the economics of the public publishing industry, uh, morphed into what they called a bookazine in conjunction with the University of Texas Press. Mm-hmm. And so UT Press was putting out uh, issues of what were essentially theme issues of no depression without advertising. Um, I think a quarterly or semi-annual basis. Um, and then when that, when that didn't seem to work out, uh, they doing forces for a book series, and uh, and in the meantime, there ended up being some uh, I don't know some dissension over you know some falling out over the people who had once been part of No Depression, and you know so they no longer use the name uh, No Depression for the book series, but they were looking you know they asked me if I would be one of two authors to launch this book series for University of Texas Press. And I gave my editors and UT Press a, uh, a list of about uh, six different artists who I would be willing to write a book on. And Dwight was the one that UT Press uh, just jumped all over. They really wanted a Dwight book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that that kind of leads to the more idealistic reason. I mean, the professional reasons where I had to write a book, UT Press wanted a Dwight book. Uh, the, the, the reasons why a Dwight book are a great idea is that Dwight has a terrific story to tell. And if I didn't realize until I had already signed to uh, to write the book, uh, it, it's been severely underreported. There, you know, there were no books on Dwight. Uh, and and I think Dwight is just a far more significant figure than he has often been given credit for. So uh, so once I got into it, it, it made sense. You know, that Dwight would like a great book. Uh, originally, when I submitted my list, it was mainly you know out of expediency. Who can I write a book on? Who I have had plenty of contact with with over the years, knowing that this was going to have to be a quick turnaround, and I wasn't going to be able to spend years uh, doing research with a large advance subsidizing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you a, are you, were you a fan of, of Yoakum's music coming into this? Oh, def- yeah, definitely, from the start. Uh, uh-huh. I mean, I, uh, the, as I recount in the book, uh, the first time I saw Dwight was when I was the pop music critic at the Chicago sometimes, and Dwight was uh, touring uh, in conjunction with the major label release of his uh, first, uh, you know, the EP that had been expanded into a Warner Brothers LP. Mm-hmm. And I saw him at the Vic, which is a Northside converted theater, but that didn't at that time uh, generally have country music. And, you know, it was, to me, it was as exciting as any punk rock show I'd ever been to. I almost felt like I was back in the days of the real blood and guts honky tonks. So I, I felt like there should have been chicken wire in front of the stage for people, you know, throwing beer bottles or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I, I liked Dwight's music on, you know, on the recordings I'd heard because I, um, you know, I, I, I like traditional country music. I liked it more now than I did then. Uh, I, uh, I thought he sounded a little mannered. You know, it just seemed kind of retro revivalist uh, on album. Uh, and then, you know, when I saw him, it's just like everything really kicked in. I just, uh, you know, I became an instant convert. Mm-hmm. Uh, I subsequently had the chance to do a, a, a long interview with Dwight, maybe, you know, another year or two down the road. 
and was just really impressed by how um, perceptive he was and how honest he was. Uh, and also what a world-class talker he was. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think I brought three or four tapes, and I think we ran out of tape, even then. I mean, he just, and Dwight's, Dwight's sentences go on for what would be pages, you know, <laughs> many different tangents uh, simultaneously, but, but he's a really bright guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was also just fascinated at that point by all the contradictions. I mean, you've got this, this you know, honky-tonk throwback who's making his living on barroom songs, drinking songs, cheating songs, uh, and he's, you know, he was raised a fundamentalist Christian. Uh, he's, you know, he's still, to the best of my knowledge, he has never had a drink, doesn't do drugs. Uh, you know, I mean, he's, he's kind of, uh, he's kind of Puritan for that, for that kind of, of music. Um, and, uh, and plus the fact that, you know, his onstage persona is this, this man of mystery who's, you know, the, the brooding cowboy who's tight-lipped and doesn't say more than necessary. And there's a quality, there's that quality in his music, very calm and cursed. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, talking to him, he's this chatterbox who you can't get to shout out. <laughs> but, uh, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. Absolutely. Uh, so, so, so in any event, uh, you know, I started out being interested in Dwight because of his tradition, because he had come from the L.A. punk rock movement. But this seemed to me a fundamental leap to be able to go from, you know, playing for fans of X and the Blasters to, you know, being on mainstream country radio. Uh, you know, country radio, the country music industry is kind of a closed shop, and unless you go through the national pipeline and, you know, the major labels are there, uh, you don't have much of a shot. Uh, Dwight somehow certainly found that. Uh, Dwight somehow retained his credibility with uh, rock fans, uh, alternative rock fans, uh, while having huge country hits. I mean, so, so Dwight was doing a lot of things, but the Nobody else had done, and nobody has done on the scale that Dwight has. Uh, consequently, after excuse me, after I had uh, signed to do the book, I kind of figured, well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll start just doing the research. And I discovered there really wasn't much out there. I mean, I, you know, it, it seems like like. Anybody who's had a hit record has at least a quickie fan biography that's been issued, but uh, but nothing on Dwight. So so the field is wide open. So is it part of his story? I think that you're the first to write a biography of him. Why? Uh, do you have any any thoughts about why nobody's written about him thus far until you? I, I'm really not sure, to tell you the truth. Uh, my, my suspicion is that by the time uh, by the time it became obvious what Dwight had accomplished, was, you know, things were kind of falling apart with his career, which is another fascinating part of the story because mm-hmm. there was no plan on my part to have my book coincide with his career resurrection, which is really what's happened with Dwight. So, so maybe the time had come and gone. But no, I, I don't understand. Uh, I uh, you know maybe people thought that they had trouble getting access. I didn't know that I'd have any access when I when I went at it. I think I think maybe it has something to do with timing. I think that there is more of a trend toward books on popular music within the last decade than there was. During um, you know the time when the time that Dwight was at his popular peak, uh, you know the fact that there's maybe half a dozen books on on Graham Parsons whose life was short <laughs> uh, and whose influence was 
you know, Paramount, but whose accomplishment was negligible compared to mm-hmm. Dwight's. Uh, you know, and there was nothing on Dwight was, uh, you know, was was really surprising to me. I was particularly surprised when I went through the archives of No Depression because to me, Dwight is one of these seminal figures in that, you know, I mean, the way I define that kind of music is, you know, country roots and rock attitude. And uh-huh. Dwight embodies that more than uh, just about anybody I know. So you say, like in no, no Depression, they never even wrote about him. What, I, what I'm thinking is that, uh, and, and you mentioned this a few times in this book, this, uh, <clears throat> this thing Dwight had in people's perception of authenticity, and that Dwight is very obviously a, a showman. I mean, he, he, you know, he dresses up, and he, you know, most of these no depression people are, you know, they're 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 like grungy looking guys, right? They they don't dress up, and maybe that kept them away from Dwight. Well, I I think that might be true. Uh, yeah, actually, if there had been a book on Dwight, I don't think it would have been aimed at the old country crowd. I would have, I think that it would have been more aimed at the commercial country side, you mm-hmm. know, those fans. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Dwight, Dwight's a little younger than I am, but both he and I came of age, musical age, during the era of AM radio, when a lot of things were, you know, mixed together, crossing boundaries, and where a lot of stuff that was the best regarded music was also the most popular music. I mean, so, so Dwight grew up in an era of hits. You know, it was just, mm-hmm. I mean, Hank Williams had hits. George Jones had hits. Duck Owens had hits on the same radio stations as the Beatles. I never, you know, I never thought of when I was growing up, uh, Buck Owens or Marty Robbins or Johnny Cash as being, you know, of a different musical genre than, uh, you know, than anybody else that was hearing on AM radio. I never knew that something like country existed. Uh, as far as authenticity goes, I think there's a couple things going on there. One is that Dwight, Dwight's show is perceived as very sensual and very appealing to women. Uh, and I think that male rock critics have trouble taking seriously things that appeal primarily to women. Uh, now, just that Justin Timberlake was considered a joke as long as his fan base was all women. It was only when he started being legitimized by collaborating with other respected male artists that male rock critics started taking Justin Timberlake seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you know, I think if you look at the template, that a lot of what Dwight did is very similar to what Elvis did. I mean, Elvis had the huge female following. He drove him crazy. He dressed up. You know, mm-hmm. if he was authentic, I don't know authentic to what. You know, there weren't many uh, truck driving mamas boys in uh, <laughs> in Tennessee who moved or looked like Elvis. So, and I, so I, whatever. Whatever Dwight's sins are against authenticity, as I point out in the book, you know, Hank Williams came from a part of the country where nobody wore cowboy hats. Hank Williams wore a cowboy hat. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, show business is putting on a show, uh, and and Dwight's heroes have always been people who did that. So, so Dwight makes no apologies from the start about wanting to have hit records and wanting to appeal to the widest possible audience. What, mm-hmm. What's amazing is that he didn't compromise his music in order to do that. Uh, I mean, it, it wasn't like anybody was saying, well, if you... If if you would just you know sound this way or work with these writers or have this producer or dress like this, we can make you into a big star. Which is typically the way Nashville approaches anybody. In White's case, he did it you know all on his well on his own with Pete Anderson, uh, you know, however many thousands of miles away from Nashville, and uh, and it was so good that uh, that he made it through. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm starting to be like, right, I'm just, I'm talking nonstop. Uh, well, you, you are absolutely right in that, uh, 
the punk rock side, the roots rock side, there is a real uh, suspicion of popular success of selling out of inauthenticity, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. And so that's up that. Um, a couple times in your book, you emphasize that this is a musical biography. What do you mean by that? I knew going, well, I didn't even know, know going into it whether I was going to uh, have access to Dwight. So there were, there were a few, I didn't want people perceiving this book as something that it, that it wasn't. Uh, and being a more standard biography that would be longer, that would be exhaustive, that would, you know, have lots of interviews with people who grew up with Dwight or, you know, his, his Sunday school teacher or his drama coach or whatever. Uh, I had, it, it was kind of a series that I had a fixed amount of space and I had a fixed amount of time. Um, and I knew what I could accomplish in that amount of time, and that was actually the, the story that the series is designed to tell, to to focus on the music, or to focus on the musical development. So I really thought of this as like a biography of the music, and anything that didn't relate to the music, uh, you know, girlfriends that, you know, the gossip, whatever, you know, I just, it, it wasn't part of the book. So not a biography, you know, I mean, I, I was tracing the development of the music in the same way that you trace the development of the life, all the, and obviously, you know, there's there are parallel tracks with the life and the music. Uh, I go into his movie career, but I go into acting mainly in the way that it affected his, the development of his music and his musical career. Okay, then, um, uh, why don't you, let's talk about his musical biography a little bit, but it, it has to start with, as you say, there's the parallel between his life since he's making the music. Um, tell us a little bit about his early years growing up before he goes out to Los Angeles, please. Well, Dwight has long made a, uh, uh, I mean, the Kentucky side of his heritage is what he has steeped his persona in. But the fact is that Dwight grew up, I mean, from I think the age of two, I'd have to go back to the book and look, but uh, from very young, he grew up in Columbus, Ohio. And Columbus is the largest city in the state of Ohio. Uh, a lot of people don't know that because I don't have major league teams. But uh, Columbus <laughs> is huge. It's got Ohio State. You know, I mean, it's it's not Southern, uh, even in the way that Cincinnati is Southern. And so Dwight would make trips back to Kentucky to visit grandparents and relatives. But, uh, but he really grew up as, a, as an Ohio City kid. Um, his, his parents listened to a lot of country music, but Dwight also listened to a lot of other stuff, you know, just on AM radio. Uh, he talks in the book about one of his, you know, one of his early musical successes was being able to mimic Rock On by David Essex, which was a very hickory sort of British uh, rock track from from that era. Uh, he, you know, he, he got his, he was he was more interested in drama in high school than he was in music. He was, uh, his musical start was, uh, you know, forming a Sha-Na-Na type band. Uh, and actually when, you know, there's, so, so he has all of this Ohio in him. Uh, he wanted, you know, he wanted to get out of Ohio. He wanted to be in show business. Uh, he spent, uh, you know, a semester at Ohio State, the hometown university. Split for Nashville, uh, knowing some people through his church down there. Uh, and there's like this apocryphal story about Dwight, you know, making the pilgrimage to Nashville and Nashville spurning him. Whereas the reality is that Nashville had no idea who Dwight was, nor 
should they have? I mean, Dwight at that point hadn't written any songs. He had no musical direction. Uh, you know, he had an audition at Opryland. I mean, it, it wasn't like Dwight had anything to bring to Nashville. Uh, and when he went out, you know, he, he subsequently, instead of going back to school, uh, he went out to, uh, to Los Angeles and the major reasons he went to Los Angeles, I mean, he went there kind of to follow the country rock. Uh, but, you know, he, he knew he could do Eagle songs. Uh, he was a big Emmy Lou Harris fan. Uh, he was a big uh, Prince fan. Um, and a lot of the stuff that, uh, that Dwight went out to L.A. to pursue, uh, it was gone by the time he got there. Um, and he, you know, he ended up as a short order cook uh, in Long Beach. He uh, he did some community theater out there, uh, and you know, it took Dwight's overnight success took him about ten years from the time he went out to Los Angeles to when he got uh, you know really started to get build a buzz out there. So and then, so you know. He, that was with the punk rock scene, you know, which, which Blade had no, you know, the punk rock scene, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't like he was going out for the idea, oh, this is, this is the master plan, you know, it, it was a fluke. So he went out to L.A. for the same reason so many young people go out to L.A. I mean, it was show business generally. I mean, he could have ended up being an actor for all he knew, right? That's exactly true, and and he says, you know, I mean, on the uh, in the book, he talks about how so many of his former influences were like watching cowboys on TV and having this understanding that a lot of this cowboy ethos was the product of some soundstage in California, you know. Was, and so what he, you know, he, he had these dual influences, uh, cowboy shows and guitar heroes. So he, he wanted to be, you know, the, the cowboy with the guitar. And, uh, and you know, yeah, so he went out there for the same reason a lot of other people. And, mm-hmm. and with about as much chance. Uh, I mean, the way he tells it, he went out there because a friend of his, uh, was driving out there, and I was like, you want to come? Can you hear nothing going on? And he said, sure. Uh, his friend moved back uh, six months later, and Dwight stayed. Mm-hmm. So so um, talk a little bit then about that, uh, uh, I guess, the punk rock scene he falls into. Uh, it's not so much like the black flag type punk rock scene, although there is a mix of fans. Um, it was more what you you call, you know, this this Americana with the Blasters or Los Lobos. Right, and and there was an overlap in audience, and there was even an overlap in in the bills they were sharing. Uh, you know, there's a, I mean, the, the Blasters and X. You know, had had a lot in common, and actually, you know, Dave Alvin from the Blasters ended up filming X, uh, you know, for for a brief spell. But uh, I mean, I think with both bands, there was a real reverence for uh, for American musical roots. Uh, I think that throughout the punk scene, there was this rejection of. Artifice and this, the rejection of, you know, craft and polish that had kind of taken the place of passion and raw emotion and muscle. And, uh, and so, as like, you know, Dave Alvin from the Blasters was the big, the early big champion of white. And, uh, and, you know, he came upon him at the Palomino, which had once been early, you know, early on, it was the place where the mainstream country, you know, as opposed to LA had the hockey talk, kind of became kind of home base for the country rock people. And by the time White was out there, he was mainly being like a human jukebox, you know, was doing three or four sets a night. You know, it's sometimes opening for other people, but uh, often just being there and, uh, 
you know, Dave Alvin saw him and just said, "Man, this is the real deal." You know, this this is this is what country music is missing, because you got to realize at that point, country music was was really lame. You know, it was it was even more uh, soft rock than it is now, and it was urban cowboy, and it was. Uh, it had gone, you know, it had gone about as far towards suburbanization as you could get. Uh, and here was a guy who talked like he was from Kentucky and, you know, who sang with a twang and who had a red hot band and who was singing songs that sounded like they could have been hits, uh, you know, 20 years earlier. And, uh, and that fit right into what what Alvin was doing with the Blasters. And, and the Blasters did that for a lot of acts. You know, the Blasters did the, the, did the same thing for Los Lobos, who wouldn't necessarily seem to fit within the, uh, you know, the, the traditional punk aesthetic, but, uh, but they were, you know, were embraced as kindred spirits. Mm-hmm. You, you have a, a nice phrase in here talking about uh, what, where country music was and country rock, you, you say there's this period post Burrito Brothers, pre Garth Brooks, where where country and country rock is, is well, you just called it lame. So I guess I'll use your term. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was there was a period when there really wasn't much uh, there wasn't much going on. It was very interesting. So, and and what one had going for him from the start was a really dynamic live performance. Uh, and so even punk rock fans, you know, there, there was a comment about with the energy that, that Dwight was uh, projecting from the stage. And Dwight, of course, would feed off the energy from the crowd. So it, uh, you know, it, uh, it somehow worked fine, although it's hard for me from a distance to see how anybody thought, you know, you were going to be able to get from you know the the punk rock clubs of Los Angeles to the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah, it's um, I, I don't know what what uh, stories you've heard about how the the audience is treating them. I, I mean, I, I know that some of those L.A. punk rock you know audiences were were not very nice to you know they would beat up artists sometimes and get in fights. And I do you have any stories of how he how he dealt with those well, crowds? Yeah, I think there was. Some- I think there was some of that, but I think it depended on the, uh, you know, depended on the audience. Uh, it depended on the club and depended on the night. Uh, and, you know, I mean, early on in punk, there was a lot more latitude. You know, I mean, punk, punk was all about breaking all the rules at mm-hmm. the start. Mm-hmm. Uh, and punk very quickly became this almost fascist, rule-bound sort of music where you had to look like this and you had to sound like this and you had to play this fast and you had to do whatever or else you wouldn't be authentically punk. And, you know, and, and that to me is not very punk rock. But, uh, yeah, you know, there was a... It was funny because at the time that I was working on the last stages of the book, uh, Bob Mould was coming out with his book, which I reviewed, and, and he talked about having Dwight on tour with him early on uh, with Husker Du, and uh, and how the Husker Du crowd would shout at him, play faster, <laughs> and Bob said, so Dwight would play faster, you know. <laughs> But yeah, I, I mean, Dwight has not, you know, Dwight has nothing but good things to say about the reception he received in in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, those people, you know, they they got him, you know, early press. They got him, you know, they they started a buzz around him, and not only around him. I mean, this was also a time when. Well, there was there was kind of a resurgence of that kind of music. I mean, you had you had Lone Justice, uh, you had Rank and File, uh, you had you know you kind of had what was what was starting to be known as cow punk. Mm-hmm. Although everybody who's you know remotely associated with says that Dwight 
Dwight was never cowpunk. Cowpunk was like we were talking about earlier, where mm-hmm. you know you you have this disdain for polish or whatever, and mm-hmm. you take the stage late in uh, you know wearing whatever you rolled out of bed in, and you don't rehearse and this and that, and uh, and that was never Dwight's. What I mean, Dwight put on a show, and his bands were well rehearsed, and they dressed up for the show, you know, and that, that was from the start, because Dwight, you know, Dwight didn't have any interest in being some punk rock cult act. So, uh, if, not, if nothing else, um, those demanding crowds taught him how to, you know, entertain, I'm sure, and he oh, paid yeah, his well, dues. And he, I can't... I, I, I think teaching him how to entertain is probably an overstatement because I think he was a natural entertainer. I mean, his, his family says he was a hand from the start, uh, so that was recognized. But, yeah, definitely, you know, he was able through those shows to really get a sense of how to pace these, how to pace the set, how to make the song work, what worked, what didn't all of that, you know, well before going into the recording studio. So, so like Pete Anderson said, by the time they finally signed with Warners and got a, uh, you know, and started recording albums, they had three albums worth of material that they thought were good, uh, you know, right then. It wasn't, you know, just from playing all that time. So that, that, that's a nice transition. Don, thanks. Why don't you... Uh, he, uh, Pete makes uh, an early demo in 1981, uh, and then uh, a well, few Pete years... Well, Pete did not make the demo. Uh, not Pete. Pete, not Pete, I'm sorry. Dwight, yes. Um, and he, he he meets Pete at some point, and so so take us through that. Take us up to his, up to his meeting with Pete and, and getting on a... Uh, signing a contract with, a, with, with Warners. Okay, uh... There were there was kind of a community of people who were hanging around the Palomino. Um, and you know, fashion musicians and engineers and you know, all those sorts of folks, uh, who could tell that White had something. So the idea was that uh, that they they would cut a demo during off hours kind of to pitch Dwight's songs, you know, it, 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 you know, material to bigger artists. Uh, and so Dwight cut a, cut a demo. Uh, and they, uh, you know, and, and they took the demo to Nashville and, you know, nobody was really interested in the songs. Nobody was much interested in the you know, in Dwight as a singer, he really he didn't sound like what was happening in company music at that time. Uh, and uh, and so it was, uh, you know, it, it just seemed like kind of a wasted effort or whatever. But one of the people who ended up hearing the demo as it was circulating was Pete Anderson. And Pete's about 10 years older than Dwight, uh, he had more experience in recording studios. He'd work with bands as an arranger and all that sort of stuff. And listening to the tape, he was just floored by how good the singer and the songs were. And he made it a point to come to Dwight and say, you know, if you're interested, I really think there's, you know, that, that we could have something here. And, and it was Pete who introduced kind of the Buck Owens template of having the guitar be like a second voice in this. Mm-hmm. Because in the original, you know, the arrangements on the demo, uh, it sounds, you know, it almost sounds bluegrassy, like a bunch of musicians chasing each other, you know, no, no, nothing really dominant. Uh, and once Pete got together with Dwight, uh, Pete understood how to arrange these songs to really bring an edge to them. And, you know, to have intros and outros and breaks 
and uh, how to edit them down, how they have a real rhythm section, and uh, and so you know it's at, at a certain point it becomes you know I mean I wouldn't want to overcredit peak with white success because it isn't it isn't like peak you know had had this Australia's success on his own. Um, and to my mind, under the mind of a lot of people, neither Pete nor Dwight has done anything as interesting since they've split uh, as they did together. Although I will say I really like Dwight's new album a lot, and uh, mm-hmm. you know I think that it's uh, and that was you know released after the book. But uh, but my sense is that the biggest break that each of them got was meeting the other and somehow recognizing that they had something great going together and that they would stick to that no matter, you know, what other people told them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and that led to the release of the, you know, an EP on a uh, small label, that, you know, that, that EP on Oak Records, I think it was limited to like 5,000 pressings. One of them got to Jack Hurst, who was at that point the only syndicated country music columnist. He ran the Chicago Tribune. He was based in Nashville. And Jack Hurst wrote a rave about this EP, mm-hmm. uh, bringing light to the attention of Warner Brothers. And, uh, and Warner Brothers, you know, the, Everybody at that point was searching for like the next big, big thing because it was obvious that the urban cowboy thing had become a joke and a cliche and it wasn't selling anything anymore. So, you know, and Darth was yet to be on the horizon. So there were all sorts of, you know, what, what is it going to be? You know, is it, is it going to be, uh, you know, Austin style music? Is it going to be folkish? Is it going to be, you know, pop? What, what's it going to be? And so, so they were willing to take a flyer on Dwight. Uh, maybe 10 years earlier, 10 years later, they might not. Mm-hmm. The music business is, you know, it's the best time for music fans is when the music business really has no idea what it's doing. Uh, when it's flailing about for new ideas. Mm-hmm. Because when the music business has something that thinks works, it will continue to try to duplicate that and duplicate that and duplicate it uh, mm-hmm. until it you know, just becomes a cliche. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so they re-release on Warner's his, his, that earlier EP, right? Well, what, yeah, they they actually added to it. The e, what had been an EP, uh, and you know, I, I'd have to look back on it. But I think it might have been a six-song EP, and it ended up being ten songs on Warner's or something like that. But uh-huh. yeah, they they recorded some more songs, used the same cover, only colorized it. Uh, you know, and and a lot of this would be, you know, I mean. This was actually fairly radical because a lot of times when you know if somebody would sign an artist like that on the basis of an EP and they wanted to make a major label release on it, mm-hmm. they didn't you go into a Nashville studio with Nashville musicians and the Nashville producer and you know redo the thing. Warner uh, mm-hmm. Brothers, you know, pretty much let what Dwight had done stand. Uh, you know, even Tim McGraw, I mean, somebody who was selling multi-platinum had to fight, you know, it, it took him three or four albums before he could get to the point of using his own musicians in the studio. Uh, Dwight, from the start, always recorded with his with his touring band. So, you know, it was a whole different thing. At what point... Um does he become a commercial success? Right away, not right away. Uh, almost, almost instantaneously. Uh, and he started out. He started out his tour. Uh, you know, he was still playing with the likes of Bob Mould. He played uh, with the Blasters. You know, he was doing a lot of things supporting. Uh, you know, punk rock bands, uh, but. 
with the release of the album in 1986, I mean, he started getting airplay for uh, for Honky Talk Man. Uh, and another really important thing that happened around that time is you have the rise of video. And so, you know, even though country radio had the stranglehold, CMT was breaking a lot of newer artists, and particularly somebody who was as videogenic as Dwight. I mean, there just became a demand for the sort of excitement that he was generating. Uh, you know, very visual artist, and so that uh, you were you were able to do things quicker at that point than you might have been earlier, where you had to build an audience by playing on. You know, the same fans, it might take you two years to reach uh, playing the hockey talks. Uh, you can reach, you know, in a month of power rotations for video. So, so, so Dwight left Los Angeles as a, uh, you know, as, as a punk rock and opening act, and he returned from a year of touring uh, as a uh, mainstream country star. MT- MTV liked him too, didn't they? Well, yeah, they did. Yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah, I mean, he, uh, you know, he, he was the one country artist that a lot of people who didn't consider themselves country fans uh, embraced. Uh, and that's also, you know, th- this is something that kind of figures in the book or figures in my writing the book, and it jumps ahead in the story, but the. But when Dwight released this time, which was his most commercially successful album, uh, Rolling Stone commissioned me to do the lead review on that album. And at that time, the, the lead review of Rolling Stone was a big deal. Uh, you know, Rolling Stone barely covered country music at that point. Mm-hmm. And so to, uh, to, to slot someone like Dwight Yoakam to give him that space for the 750,000 word review was just uh, was amazing. And this was before, you know, Rolling Stone would start chasing the emerging country market with Garth Brooks covers and stuff like that. You know, I mean, this was, this was rude. So yeah, Dwight, Dwight all along, if you, if you go to a Dwight concert, you would get a good portion of the crowd that self-identified as country music fans and only went to country music concerts, that you would get a real sizable group who otherwise didn't like country music, who never listened to country radio, who never went to country concerts, but who really liked Mike. So, mm-hmm. you know, and that was, that was unheard of for somebody who was getting mainstream country airplay. And his... Uh, his band with, with you, t- you already mentioned that he recorded with his touring band and with Pete Anderson and others in his band, they, they were a pretty darn good live act, correct? Oh, they're terrific. Uh, uh-huh. you know, it's, uh, people who saw them early on at the Palomino said that even then you could envision them playing the large stage. Uh, and and yeah, I mean, it, you know, they they knew they knew how to make it work, and it didn't make any difference whether it was a small club, whether it was a medium-sized club like the Vic where I first saw them, which you know, maybe seven hundred and fifty thousand people. Uh, later, saw the Chicago Theater, you know, which holds you know maybe three times that many, and that Buck Holmes was on, you know, a special guest was on at that point. Uh, yeah, it was always it was always a great a great live band that obviously could recreate the, you know, the album arrangements because they were the ones who had recorded it, but who always brought a, a, an extra special dynamism to the live performance. It was, right, and, yeah, it was always a rock show. You know, it, it, it was, it was country roots, but they had the energy of the rock show. Uh-huh. And they were, they were sterling musicians as well. They were what? I'm sorry. Sterling musicians. They could play. Sterling, yes. Oh, yeah. They could play. Yeah, all of yeah. all of them could play. Uh, and uh, and yeah, and 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 there was you know there was some upheaval. There were you know people coming and going, and uh, you know but but Pete really knew how to. He, he was a real band leader. I mean, he really knew how to make that work, and he really knew how to 
support the musicians and support the singer and the songs without help staging the singer and the song. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we'd be remiss if we if if I didn't ask you to talk about uh, Dwight's relationship with uh, Buck Owens. It's a funny thing because. Early on, I mean, Dwight is so much associated with Buck Owens, and in the same way that, say, a sweep at the wheel is with Bob Wills. Uh, before Dwight went to Los Angeles, I don't think Buck Owens was really on his radar. Uh, and even when he recorded the first album, uh, you know, it's, it's more Johnny Horton. You know, the, the original hockey talk man. Uh, Johnny Horton, Johnny Cash. These are people who, you know, and, and as he explained to me, the, you know, the, the beacons of inspiration before going out there were, I mean, Will Harris and John Fogarty. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like Dwight was really making this connection with Bakersfield. However, Keith understood that Bakersfield was where this real, guitar twangs where the country music was coming from. Uh, and so it was Bakersfield who provided the template for, uh, for Keith to be involved. Uh, and then by the time of the second album, uh, like, well, you know, the, the song Little Ways, which was, which, you know, really sounded like a buckle on cover. I mean, it was like he had really shifted toward you know, having Buck be a major influence, uh, and and you know, and then uh, you know, it wasn't long after that that he was bringing Buck out of uh, third album, bringing Buck out of semi-retirement for the streets of Bakersfield, putting Buck back on the country charts, and mm-hmm. from then on in, Buck, who was you know, Bill was a notoriously difficult man and an extremely shrewd businessman. Uh, mm-hmm. Buck pretty much adopted uh, Dwight as a surrogate son, at least a surrogate artistic son. Uh, and Dwight, you know, ended up, you know, Buck became like, you know, the biggest star in his constellation. But I'd say that was two or three albums in. That wasn't from the start. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've already mentioned this record, but you seem to make the argument that kind of uh, thus far in his career anyway, uh, Dwight's apex, both commercially and artistically, is with the album This Time. Um, That's tell, tell, tell us about that record and, and why you think this about it. Well, the, the first three albums were, like I said before, those were albums that were stage-tested, where all of the material had been stuff that Dwight had been recording for, or, you know, playing for years. Uh, and so it was, it was all ready to go. Uh, with the fourth album, uh, If There Was a Way, which I see as kind of a transitional album, uh, Dwight, you know, he no longer had that big bag of songs that he had from the start. So he, so he did some, so he did some co-writes, uh, good co-writes with Roger Miller and Costas, who's a big uh, country songwriter. Uh, and and that album, I mean, it holds up, but it's you know, it's I think when people think of the early Dwight, it's really those first three, uh, you know. And then this time was the longest time between albums. He released, uh, you know, Dwight, Dwight at the start was pretty much releasing an album a year, album every year and a half. There were 40 years between If There Was A Way and This Time. Mm-hmm. Uh, to my mind, This Time is the first album that Dwight, cons- you know, really, that Dwight and Pete really conceived of as a studio creation. Uh, so, so they, there were elaborate arrangements. They were stretching, you know, they were certainly stretching beyond the honky talk. Uh, they were, they were experimenting, uh, and for whatever reasons, uh, the time was right for that kind of, uh, you know, for, for what Dwight was doing then. I mean, country radio responded, the audiences responded. Uh, the song Thousand Miles From Nowhere, 
uh, you know, which uh, which gives the Milk title from this time. You know, just it was a huge hit, and it was like nothing that Dwight had previously recorded. Uh, it's it's you know more like a Chris Isaac, almost like a Ricky Nelson song, uh, and it's got this this long guitar coda after these strings and lush arrangement uh, of guitar coda that that Pete uh, you know. Says that he pretty much got from Layla. You know, he, he was he was channeling Derek and the Dominoes then. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a big hit. There were you know there were just there were a ton of big hits from the album. It was obvious who that he was a guy who had scaled another creative peak. You know that that he was no longer being tied to any sort of anachronistic version of honky talk. You know, he wasn't a throwback. I mean, you know, this this was somebody who was who was crossing borders, uh, you know, who was looking to the future, who was looking beyond country music, but who was still finding commercial favor with country music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, you know, I mean and I think it took a lot of people by surprise because it uh, you know, if, if people weren't, if just weren't ready for that sort of growth out of Dwight. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and that's the album that really established him. Uh, you know, it was, it was, it was his biggest selling album, I think, is, you know, the, the album that, that certified his stardom. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what year did that come out? It was the early that 90s. It came out in 1993. 93. Now, uh, I hate to make it sound like we're starting to wrap up this interview, but because uh, there's a lot of career left for him after this. Um, now, obviously, he still has a career, but uh, when when does he his records? It's not too long after this that they they the sales start slipping, right? Right after that, and not slipping, plummeting. Uh, plummeting. With 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 gone uh, and gone is you know, to my mind gone. You know that. That's the heart of the book, and it's the heart of uh, it's the heart of Blake's artistry. There are many of us, uh, and including some who work on the record, who think the Gone is the best album that Blake ever made. Uh, he's he's definitely taking even more chances. It's like if he was pushing the envelope on this time, he's tearing it wide open with Gone. Uh, Introducing a Hammond organ, uh, you know, doing things that, that sound like uh, gospel blues, uh, doing, you know, just just taking all sorts of production chances, taking chances with the material, uh, whatever. Uh, it got great reviews. Uh, this time, you know, if if this time, other than the lead review in Rolling Stone, it wasn't like White was getting a whole lot of mainstream press with this time, because like I say, he snuck up on people. The press was ready for Vaughn. It was the, you know, because this time had been such a big hit, everybody was, you know, was lining up to do big light stories in conjunction with Tom. So he got he got the most press of his career, probably got the most pro- positive press of his career. Uh, spent you know more time and money on Gone than any you know than the previous albums. Uh, took more chances on it, uh, and he sold about a tenth of what uh, this time had, had sold. Uh, you know. Up to a fifth or something. I, I don't have the and and immediately, you know. I mean, and and this is where the book gets really interesting because it's like, I mean, the book's really interesting throughout. Obviously, but this, <laughs> is, this is where the story to me gets really interesting because when so, you know, when you're on a career ascent. Everybody is playing on the same team, and everybody is each other's biggest fan, and et cetera, et cetera. And everybody's encouraging risks and chances and all that. Uh, and then you have something that's as big a failure commercially as Gone was, and the fingers are pointed. Uh Pete Anderson insists, you know, that that it was the record company's fault, that that 
Ian Dwight delivered a terrific album, and you know, like I say, everybody involved with the album, nobody makes any apologies for it. Nobody says, oh, that was a mistake, you know, what a disaster. Um, they think they delivered a great album, and for whatever reason, Warner Brothers dropped the ball, that Warner Brothers couldn't uh, you know, or wouldn't promote it. Uh, people, they say the people didn't even know the album was out. Uh, I don't know why Warner Brothers would want to torpedo one of its artists unless it was this idea that here's a guy who's getting too big for his britches, who thinks he doesn't need Nashville, who thinks he's outgrown country music, whatever. Uh, Warner Brothers says that the uh, you know, that, that basically they can't force music down radio's throats. And and at that time, and really still, radio m- remains a huge force in deciding what is going to be popular uh, with country fans and what isn't. Uh, and in rock, you've got all these different formats. You've got alternative. You've got classic rock. You've got album rock. You've got whatever. Uh Country radio has always been, you know, like the equivalent of top 40, only really with power rotation, it's more like the top 10 or 15. So if you're not, if you're not in that mix, if you're not getting an added, a lot of people don't know you exist. Uh, and so, you know, to, from Warner Brothers' standpoint, uh, Dwight and Pete and whoever just misfired, they miscalculated, uh, what the uh, what the market was and how much they could get away with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they they stepped too far over the bounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whether this is a label trying to punish an artist, whether this is an artist who is receiving insufficient label support, or maybe this is just the natural uh, rise and fall of a career. Because I got a real good run, uh, you know, and it's con- like you say, continued to have a real good run, make really good music, and enjoy a, you know, a popular following, a very devoted popular following. Mm-hmm. But he, he hasn't been the radio mainstay since this time that he was up till then. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we are running out of time. So let's, uh, I mean, he does quite a bit and you, that you write about. I mean, he, he goes, he leaves Warner's, he puts out a record or two with New West, an independent label. Uh, well, he had a, he had a different, uh, indie, indie contract before them. Uh, I think that Dwight didn't understand how, you know, if he was going to be a country artist, how much he needed, uh, you know, a, a label with a national country presence. I'm, I'm wondering how much to, to this day, though, he still kind of remembers those punk rock roots and the do-it-yourself roots, and, you know, you don't have to have the major label. You can still, especially today, right, you can still do it on your own. Well, you can, and actually that's one of the reasons why Dwight took so long before uh, releasing this latest album. Uh, they were exploring lots of different options. Then they were talking to different labels. He was, you know, he was talking, when I interviewed him, he was talking about the idea of maybe, you know, maybe the album, the day the album was gone. Maybe he would just release cuts, you know, for downloading. Because mm-hmm. uh, he's always had a lot of music. But yeah, I mean, the, uh, the industry has changed so much, but ultimately what happened is that the guy who ran New West later subsequently went to work for Warner Brothers and you know somehow shepherded Dwight back into the Warner Brothers fold and it just made you know it made sense for Dwight to be back with Warner Brothers. It was a whole new cast of characters there. And since Warner Brothers has the whole catalog, has, you know, all those previous albums, uh, they can promote him as a you know, it's 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 to everyone's benefit for Dwight to do well. Uh, that gives new stuff can help sell the old stuff, you know, all that sort of thing. So Dwight's back on Warner's and, you know, all of this happened. I mean, there were hints of it happening, you know, when I was working on the book. Uh, but, uh, you know, everything was tied up and the album was recorded, uh, released after the book. So, mm-hmm. so, so, uh, 
Don, what can what can we what do we learn from Dwight's story? Well, that, that's I, my academic question for you. Okay. Well, it depends on you know who who we are. I think if, I think if we are an artist, we take terrific encouragement and inspiration from the fact that he was a guy who stuck to his guns, who uh, you know didn't compromise, didn't play by the rules. Everybody said that you needed to play by, and who won the game. Uh, who made history? Uh, I think if uh, you know, if if we are people approaching this from the outside, we take a long, hard look at authenticity and what it means, uh, what it means in the career of light, uh, and we we certainly become more suspicious of the whole idea of commercialism being a dirty word, uh, but there's nothing wrong with, you know, with, I mean, popular music strives to be popular. Dwight is a popular musician. Uh, and I think ultimately what any of us learn is that Dwight, for all the success he's had, uh, remains underrated as a singer, as a songwriter, and as... You know, a, a, a significant artist, someone who, you know, for for a very brief time, uh, made an amazing impact on country music. And maybe he still will, huh? Well, maybe he still will. Yeah, I mean, his his new album is, you know, I mean, you know, it, it's a terrific creative achievement. It sounds like no album that he has made before, and it sounds just like life. Fabulous. And, and um, what are you up to, Don? I know you're teaching, but are, are in, I think you told me you're in the, in the middle of finals this week, maybe. Um, uh, well, I'm getting ready to start a summer semester. I actually coordinate a, uh, a master's program in what is called strategic communication, which uh -huh. is all sorts of different uh, types of non-journalistic uh, communicate, you know, public affairs, mm -hmm. uh, fundraising, uh, health communication, different things like that. So I'm, I'm deep in the academia. I have to, you know, decide, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get another writing project on, on the uh, front burner pretty soon. So mm -hmm. as soon as I get my head up for grading papers, I may start uh, thinking about that. Fabulous. Well, um, I, we didn't get to a lot of your book, and I hope the people who listen will actually read the book and, and, and get to what we didn't get to. But um, thank you for being on New Books and Popular Music, Don. Well, thanks for all the great questions. And again, I really appreciate it. Okay. Well, uh, you have, you have a, a good time. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to a conversation with Don McLeese about his book, White Yoga, A Thousand Miles from Nowhere published by the University of Texas Press in 2012. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.